Father in heaven, God, I pray that the Spirit of God would use uh, the words of Jesus here uh, to impress them deeply on our hearts, to bear much fruit in our transformation to your praise. We ask all this in your Son's name. Amen. Now turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. Now, as a reminder, we're going through Jesus' most famous sermon from chapters 5 to 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon really searches us. It really draws out how far we fall short of his standard of righteousness. But it not only humbles us, it also describes to us how we truly can and how we truly are to live this way as a disciple of Christ, living out this life of righteousness only by the grace of the gospel. Now, Jesus began this sermon with the Beatitudes. This is the kind of person that God pronounces blessing upon. He focuses on character, on who you are, countercultural to the world's virtues and ideals. And then Jesus went on to speak of how if this is the kind of person that you are, then inevitably you will have a certain kind of presence in the world. You're going to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. You will stand out for good because of your Christ-like influence on those around you. And then we saw that next Jesus describes this kind of influence in relation to God's Old Testament law. The point there is that the kind of righteousness that the Jewish leaders who had the Old Testament law, the kind of righteousness they displayed falls far short of what God intends. And then Jesus explains that one after another, dealing with anger, lust, oaths, our attitude toward our enemies. This is, as Jesus explains it, true Christianity. This is a righteousness that surpasses that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. This righteousness goes down to the level of the heart. Now we get to our chapter, chapter 6. And Jesus goes on with this same theme of righteousness. And then he deals with specific deeds of righteousness or piety. He addresses what was by the Jewish community at the time deemed most important in public life. What were these very visible, most important um, deeds at the time? One, almsgiving, that is giving, giving to the poor and needy. Two, prayer. And three, fasting. Uh, three examples of piety. So again, just like in chapter 5, here Jesus takes what is outwardly, the behavior. And he doesn't dismiss the importance of behavior, but then he gets at the heart behind the behavior. He gets at the motivation. The motivation. And that's what we're focusing on in our message tonight. Our motivation for righteous deeds. But before we go on looking at each of these three examples, we're going to take a look at verse 1 at Jesus' summary warning, and then we're going to make three general remarks on piety, on righteous deeds. And you see them in your notes there. So let me read for us verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So first statement I want to make here is that righteous deeds that are public are not in themselves wrong. Now here Jesus is not saying, you know, if you're ever going to do any act of worship, good works, always do it privately. He's not saying don't let anyone see you pray in public. 
We know that's not his point because he said earlier in chapter 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your good works, though not all the time, will generally be visible. They'll be seen by others. And why is that? Well, because those good works point to, or they should point to, the glory of God. So we see here that what's wrong isn't that you're practicing your righteousness before other people. It's that you're doing it in order to be seen by other people. In other words, it's the difference between doing righteousness for the approval of man versus doing it for the approval of God. Now, second remark there, the danger is in being controlled by the approval of others. Now, in letting your light shine before others, what Jesus said in chapter 5, the driving motive behind practicing righteousness is that all the praise, all the amazement and thanks would be ultimately directed to our Father in heaven. In our passage, the driving motive behind practicing righteousness is that the praise goes to us. The praise that we receive from others ends with us. Now notice that in each of the examples of piety in chapter 6, the motivation is looking good in the sight of others. In verse 2, why do the hypocrites give in the way they do? It says that they may be praised by others. In verse 5, why do the hypocrites pray, not just give, but pray in the way they do, that they may be seen by others? In verse 16, why do the hypocrites fast in the way that they do? Quote, it's that their fasting may be seen by others. Now, it's amazing to see God's wisdom here. Jesus says both in this one sermon let your light shine before others. And then also beware of practicing your righteousness to be seen by people. Because we all have a tendency to do both. I'm sure you know this feeling. Um, let's say you're meeting up with someone for discipleship in a, in a coffee shop. <clears throat> you think about bringing your Bible with you. And then you decide to take it with you. And then you're a little self-conscious about it. Because people are probably going to know. Uh, that you have a Bible with you. And people might think, that's cool. Um, other people might think, oh, this guy's a little religious. <clears throat> and then if you're meeting with this person for fellowship or discipleship, and then if you get to praying, now you're thinking, wow, people are really going to notice. right? People are going to know. Uh, but in a totally different context, we might do the exact same things, but do them to get others to look up to us. You know, I want my roommate to see I'm in the Word daily. Or we might be more motivated knowing other Christians notice us. Or look at her talking to the newcomer. That is awesome. Or look at him sharing the gospel with that person. Cold contact. That is bold. I mean, look at them. Small group, staying late into the night, even praying together. Now, um, with that said, I, I'm not trying to right, sow seeds of suspicion when people are showing true godliness. We shouldn't be assuming wrong motives in people. But the point here is that there is this tendency in us for both fear in our good works being noticed, and then also pride in our good works being noticed. 
On the one hand, we can fall prey to being timid, a cowardice, fear of living out our faith in the eyes of the world. And ideally, we would like to be in our bubble, in our safe circles, showing our faith as a hermit, isolated from contact with the world. We'll show our faith only in the safety of other Christians. You know, for such fear, that tendency in us, we need to hear Jesus, our Lord, say, let your light shine before others. Let them see grace and truth through your love. And then on the other hand, we can fall prey to hypocrisy, showiness, this outward presentation. When our faith isn't really about God, what matters far more is that others perceive us as godly and spiritual. And for that pride in us, we need to hear Jesus our Lord say, beware of doing righteous religious things for the sake of your own image. Now, what's undergirding both, whether it's the tendency to hide our faith or the tendency to display our faith so that we're known for our religiosity, is that you, you, we care far more about what other people think of us than what God thinks of us. Now, that the bad root producing these bad fruits is the fear of man instead of the fear of God. Now, last uh, statement I want to make here, third, is that we should be motivated by our Father who will reward us. Motivated by our Father who will reward us. Now, note in verse 1 the consequence that Jesus gives. He says, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, let me put it another way. Saying, don't do religious things, Bible reading, praying, going to church, serving, leading a small group, teaching. Don't do them to impress others, to look spiritual in the eyes of others, to feel like you're spiritually better than others. Why? He says, so that you don't lose your reward from God. Now, that should probably make us pause and think reward Right? I mean, we might understand if he says, don't be a hypocrite in doing religious things because God knows your heart. Or God won't accept your righteousness because they're like filthy rags or something like that. But he says, so that you don't lose your reward from our Father in heaven. Now, this is how Jesus motivated his disciples. But shouldn't my motivation for my good works just be because I love God, because God is my reward and my treasure. I mean, I don't do this for an ulterior motive, right? I don't do this because I get a reward, something from God, right? Now, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount doesn't stop and then spell out for us, just so that you're not confused, this is what I mean by reward. You know, you can expect these kinds of rewards. He doesn't elaborate on that. And so even though this isn't a message on rewards in heaven, um, we should spend a little bit of time here. We can say at least the reward includes commendation from God, words of commendation from God. In John 5, 44, Jesus speaking to the Jews who are seeking to kill him. And then he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from? From the only God. Now Jesus doesn't fault those Jews for not seeking glory. The fault is in seeking glory from man 
We ought to seek glory from God. Now, Paul wrote in a few places that when for believers our works are judged, each one will receive his commendation from God. And in Romans 2.9, Paul is speaking of the circumcision of the heart and that for such a person whose heart is circumcised, his praise is not for man, but from God. Note, we are seeking praise from God. And finally, we, we long to hear from the lips of Jesus our Savior those precious words after our life is over, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, those are words of approval, affirmation, commendation. Surely this is reward. This is motivation. Our greatest ambition is to be pleasing to him. And my works are, are not meaningless to him. They, they matter to him. That God is faithful means he sees your righteous deeds. He notices and he will do something in response. He will reward you for them. That is what Jesus is saying here. And if, if we're wondering, if, am, am, I still, am I not still just making it about me if I'm pursuing praise, commendation, honor, glory from God? I think one writer says it very helpfully. He says, we pursue praise from God in order to render greater praise to God. And we pursue praise from God in order to render greater praise to God. And we see this image in Revelation 4. There, there's a vision of 24 elders uh, around the throne of God. And they, they each have a crown. Um, and they bow down and, and cast their golden crowns, the crowns that they have been rewarded with, they cast them before God, before the throne. In eternity, all the riches, treasures, rewards, glory, praise that we receive from God, we enjoy not because they make much of us, but because they make much of God. They increasingly point to His beauty, His worth, His bounty, and we're enabled more and more through the riches that we are given to enjoy God, make His glory known. So that is a motivation for us in doing righteous deeds. Now, uh, we want to get into the specifics here. And so Jesus addresses three practices of piety. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And I think one helpful way to see these is that they represent three different relational orientations. And here's what I mean. First, almsgiving is in reference to others. And then second, prayer is in reference to God. And then third, fasting is in reference to the self. You're denying yourself legitimate pleasures. Now first, uh, almsgiving, or giving to the poor and needy. I'll read for us verses 2 to 4. Jesus says this, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, uh, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. When you read the Old Testament, 
It resounds with God's care for the weak and helpless. Israel is indicted for oppressing the poor, doing injustice to the needy, not taking care of the widow, the fatherless, the disadvantaged. Proverbs 14.21 says, He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him, honors the maker. Now, by the time of the first century, synagogues functioned as social agencies. And so people's contribution to the synagogues helped to give relief for the poor. But as we see here, as Jesus points out, there were those who gave to the needy and did it in a way that called attention to their lavish giving. Now, I think, you know, we should ask, maybe we wonder, you know, did this really happen? You know, when the scribes and Pharisees gave an offering, were there trumpets actually being blown in the synagogues and in the streets to announce their large donation to the poor? I mean, that seems pretty obviously self-exalting, right? I mean, our language today, it is virtue signaling, right, at the highest level. I mean, it might have happened that way. Um, another interpretation, some scholars believe that the receptacles for the offering in the temple, uh, they were trumpet-shaped. And so Jesus is doing a wordplay here. Another interpretation is that the blowing of trumpets happened at the beginning of fasts, uh, which is connected with almsgiving. So it might just be a reference to that. We're not exactly sure the historical setting, but this is something we can take away. At least we can say that this trumpet sounding was a metaphor for calling attention to their pious act of giving. And so Jesus is speaking out against such people as hypocrites. Hypocrites. And a hypocrite, originally in the Greek, it just referred to an actor in a play. As someone who wears a mask to pretend to be someone they're not. But uh, over time, this word came to be used uh, in, the, in the way we understand it in English today. Now, someone is one way on the outside, but is different on the inside. Now, sometimes there are those who know they are deceiving others deliberately. And then there are also those who deceive themselves into thinking they're doing the will of God and then deceiving others into thinking the same. Now, for such people, Jesus says their reward is the recognition from others. I mean, that's it. That's all they're going to get. Nothing from the Father. So then what is the alternative Jesus gives? Verse 3, he says, But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And when we give, we give not so that we can tell others about our giving, uh, but even deeper than that, we give, in a sense, not even to tell ourselves about it. Now, sin is subtle. And though we may not be boasting outright about uh, our good works, about our giving, we might be using or dwelling on our good works to congratulate ourselves, relying on our good works to think better or more highly of ourselves. Now, I want to consider maybe a few examples. I think one subtle way in which the praise of man might drive our righteous deeds more than the praise of God is if we find ourselves too busy and too tired because of a pattern of saying yes to too many things and not really being able to turn down requests and opportunities. Why do we find it difficult to say no? 
Uh, there, there might be pride. I, I can do all these things. Um, there might just be a lack of judgment. You just miscalculated. Honest mistake. I honestly thought I had the time to do it, but I'm realizing I don't because of other commitments. But to our point here, there may also be, I really want to be well thought of. And being well thought of means I can't disappoint this person. If I do this, this request, I know this person will be pleased, even though I'm unsure if this will be pleasing to God. And even though I do worry that my other important responsibilities will suffer, I'll still say yes. Now, what is driving that? Another way, I think, in which the praise of man might drive our righteous words and behavior is when we are constantly worrying about what others think of us. You know, do they think I'm a good small group leader? Uh, do my friends like me or do they find me annoying or weird or whatever? Uh, do those people in the church I respect, you know, my pastor or this church leader or this older brother or sister, do they see me as a mature believer? Maybe there's just this one particular person whose opinion matters to you far more than it should. And you go out of your way to do this or do that to please this person. And in your mind, maybe you replay every word that you said and every action and you wonder how it was received by this person. And living to earn the approval of others is exhausting. But when God's approval is what matters first, I mean, you can entrust that relationship to Him. I mean, you can seek His wisdom in knowing how to love, and then you can rest knowing that God sees, that He sees your love. Now, let me speak to those who do give a lot to others. You give your time, resources, energy, and serving others, and that's many of you. Uh, and you're not doing it to be seen by others. You're not doing it because you're a people pleaser or to be thought of as more spiritual. But in your giving, you may be growing weary of persevering. Maybe even becoming a little bitter. Uh, you serve in a ministry team or maybe you lead a ministry team on campus. You lead small groups in your fellowship. You give rise to people who go to church and sometimes adjust your schedule to match theirs. You go out of your way to meet new people, reach out to friends, uh, even though they might not return or reciprocate in the same way. Uh, it can be discouraging uh, when the people that you are serving seem to just take it for granted. Uh, when there are little to no words of appreciation. When it seems like nobody even notices what you do and the effort involved. Now, why do it? Why keep doing it? Well, it's because God notices. It's because He knows. He doesn't forget your work and love. Your Father sees in secret, and He will reward you. I mean, even, even now, but all the more in eternity. So even when I am not recognized... And I can still do this out of love for God and out of love for them. I can trust God that he sees my act of love. He will reward me even if this person doesn't reward me with the appreciation that I would like. Now I want to move on to the second example of 
piety that Jesus points out here. Verses 5 to 9. This is on prayer. Verses 5 to 9. I'll read for us. And when you pray, uh, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, prayer is the second example that Jesus gives of hypocritical piety. Now, the synagogue, like the temple, uh, was considered a house of prayer. It was a center of Jewish life. And, of course, prayers are given there. And the street corner was even more highly trafficked. And people are expected to pray at certain times of the day, at the hour of the morning, and evening sacrifices, and, and likely a midday prayer as well. And so prayer, both corporate with others, and prayer as an individual, and at regular hours, that was a common practice of piety, showing your devotion. And now in verse 5, Jesus says that hypocrites love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. And the problem isn't the, the posture of prayer. Right? It's not whether they stood or not. I mean, you see in Scripture people praying while standing, sitting, kneeling, lying prostrate on the ground. The problem, as in the case of giving, is in the motive. Same thing, wanting to be seen by others. It's the kind of praying that is showy and ostentatious. Now, Jesus is not condemning public praying. Uh, but when we are praying in groups or with other people, how do we know that we're not praying to impress people because others are listening to us? Well, Jesus says, verse 6, he says, pray in private. He says, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. The room or closet is this small storage closet in this tiny single-room Palestinian home. It was likely the place where they kept food uh, or an, uh, food for animals and then other storage items. So you can imagine it's not the cleanest of places, but it is the most private. And that's the point of Jesus' instruction here, a place for total privacy with our Father in heaven. Note the repetition of in secret. And that's actually repeated in all three sections. Um, you see repeated twice here. And this is where you meet with God. In the secret places. This is where you can see the unseen God with the eyes of faith. When you can be conscious of being in the presence of God. And the point here is you're not thinking about how you sound to other people. You're not trying to say stuff to sound a certain way before other people. In a sense, you forget the presence of others. And you forget yourself. You're speaking freely and honestly and reverently before a great God who is your Father who bends His ear to listen to you. But in case we go the other extreme and lose sight of who we're speaking to, He says that we aren't to talk to God like unbelievers and pagans talk to their God. Jesus says don't heap up empty phrases 
or, or babble. Now, it's the thoughtless reciting of formulas, like a mantra, whether it's intelligible words like the names of gods or formulate peti uh, petitions. It could also be unintelligible words, uh, those that are spiritual sounding and language of the gods, even magical words. The point is that it, they thought if they could just chant these words, they'll get whatever they want from their deity, right? And as one commentator put it, it's the kind of praying, the type of prayer that goes on and on with little or no content. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean we don't pray lengthy prayers. Uh, we see Jesus praying through the night. Uh, we see him going to an isolated place for an extended time of praying with our Heavenly Father. Nor does this mean that we don't persist in asking the same thing. I mean, we see even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying the same words three times. So we can pray for the same things. We can pray lengthily. But what is Jesus against here? He's against the kind of praying that is not worship. Trying to manipulate God to get what you want. To control God with your endless repetitions and basically meaningless gibberish. Self-centered prayers. This kind of praying treats God as if He were hard of hearing. You just have to be loud enough, long enough, passionate enough to get what you want from Him. This kind of praying doesn't acknowledge God as a father who cares for his children, that he knows what we need before we ask. And unbelieving Gentiles don't have this concept of a sovereign and loving God. Now, Jesus, thankfully, doesn't just say, don't pray like this, this negative example. He does positively uh, give us a model to teach us to pray. And you see that in what is traditionally known as the Lord's Prayer. Um, Pastor Francis is going to lead us in that study next week. And I'm sure there's much to be applied in our prayer lives uh, based on our study next week. I'm just going to say a few words about praying in private and praying in public. I think there are those of us who have no problem praying in groups or praying with others. And I think there are those of us who would just rather not pray in front of others. Now let me first speak to the former group. Uh, maybe if you're like me, uh, sometimes it's just easier to pray when someone else is listening. You know, there's built-in accountability. Because uh, you know someone's listening, you take extra care to what's being said. Your, your mind is clear. Your mind can't wander when you're the one praying. And you're likely praying for the other person or the people in your group. So it can be motivating knowing that you, in real time you're encouraging someone through your prayer. I mean, those are some reasons that I like praying with someone else. Um, but when we are alone in private, do we pray with the same level of focus, with the same level of care with our words, about the same kinds of things that we pray with others about, even when others are not listening? And this really challenges us. How faithfully do I pray in private? Now, I want to speak also to those who would just rather not pray when others are listening. Now, I, I don't assume I know all the reasons for that. Um, but let me address maybe one reason could be the fear of being judged by others. And maybe you don't think your prayer is good enough. 
or you're not sure if you're praying in the right way, or if you're using the right words, or if you're asking for the right things. And I want to challenge you a bit, because if, if that is the primary motivation, then the underlying heart issue is the same. It's, it's being well thought of by others. Now Jesus in our passage is definitely speaking to those who love praying before other people. Uh, to sound good in the eyes of others. But the issue is still the same if we are so self-conscious of our praying that that we're afraid of praying in front of people. And we don't pray uh, because we pray perfect prayers, but because we want to talk to God. And if we're praying with others, yes, we're primarily focused on being in the presence of God, but we want to be also mindful of others. And not to impress them, but to honor them in our praying. Now one final example of hypocritical piety that Jesus addresses is fasting. Fasting. We see this in verses 16 to 18. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, fasting was another common practice in first century Judaism. According to Leviticus 16, fasting was required once a year on the Day of Atonement. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see the people of God fasting, It's often connected to mourning and repentance over sin. And in the first century, it was a regular practice of the Pharisees to fast twice a week, as Jesus pointed out in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Pharisees fasted every Monday and Thursday. Now, what is fasting? Now, fasting in the Bible has various forms, but usually it's abstaining from food for a set amount of time. A regular fasting is without food or drink, except water. But sometimes you have an absolute fast. It's, it's also even without water. Now, a partial fast uh, is abstaining from certain foods. We see that in Daniel. Uh, and the Bible also even talks about abstaining from sex if you're married for a limited time. And so that's an example of something other than food. Now, how is religious hypocrisy shown in fasting, as Jesus talks about here? Well, he says, those who intentionally look gloomy or sad to make it obvious that they're fasting. In fact, he says they disfigure or distort their faces. And Jesus is employing a wordplay there to, to point out the hypocrisy. The word for disfigure means to render unrecognizable. In other words, they make their faces unrecognizable in order to be recognized by others. Now the problem here is that fasting has become more of a performance than an act of devotion to God. Now we understand um, today, we understand charitable giving and praying, but fasting, you know, is that something that we should do? as New Testament believers. Is that, isn't that something just for the Old Testament people of God? Now, uh, while not getting into a full-blown discussion on fasting, 
I think we should take some time here. Now, fasting is not commanded in the New Testament, but it is assumed. Now, you see it in Acts 13. Uh, the leaders in the church in Antioch were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And in, actually, in that context, that's when Paul began his first missionary journey. And that really was the launch of the first and greatest missionary movement when the gospel was being taken to the Gentiles, to the nations. Jesus was asked why his disciples don't fast. And his answer was that the wedding guests don't mourn while the bridegroom is with them. But when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. And it's implying that once Jesus is physically away from his disciples, then there's going to be a level of mourning and longing for the bridegroom to come back again. Now further, in our passage, we, we see that Jesus doesn't say, if you fast, but when you fast. And he does this with the previous ones as well. When you give to the needy, when you pray. It implies that fasting too will be a normal and acceptable practice for Christians. Well, why don't we talk more about fasting then? You know, why don't we make it a regular practice? There's probably different ways to answer that question, but I think one danger to fasting is that it can easily turn into asceticism. Right? Fasting is self-denial. It's a form of self-discipline. But when the glory of God and the longing for Christ are out of the picture, fasting can be quickly driven by something else. It can turn into, you know, by fasting, I can have this awesome heightened spiritual experience with God. And that's what you're really after. Or by fasting, I'll be more likely to get what I want, what I pray for. Or it can even devolve into something that's not spiritual, right? It's more about, well, dieting and being healthy and looking good. But we're talking about biblical fasting. We know that biblical fasting is different. At the heart of biblical fasting is this desire to commune with God. To say that I want Christ more than my appetite. More than my physical drives. And that's why many times you see fasting and prayer mentioned together in Scripture. I mean, you voice to God your earnest desire for Him. You can pray without fasting, but you cannot fast without praying. So oftentimes in the Old Testament, you see fasting is associated with sorrow. And so, you know from experience, when you are grieving in a very serious way, you lose your appetite. You just don't feel like eating. There's something important to you. It's just been lost. Fasting is seen in times of deep trial, the struggle with sin, repentance. Even before important tasks or ministry or decisions need to be made. You see that when Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, before beginning his three-year public ministry. So we see that fasting can be appropriate for such instances. Going through a trial, struggling with sin, repentance, big, important ministry or decisions coming. Now, if this is you, um, I'd actually like to invite you to an opportunity to fast with some of us on staff. Now, some of us on staff will be doing a partial fast. 
we're going to forsake a partial fast, forsaking some legitimate pleasure, whether it's saying no to some forms of entertainment or saying no to certain foods, drinks, for 40 days uh, leading up to Easter, a resurrection Sunday. Now, whatever time we would have given to the things we are temporarily giving up, we're going to give that time to seeking God. And so this is going to mainly look, uh, look like two, two ways here. One is, is to pray more earnestly for you guys, for Beacon, for your faith, for your struggles, what we know of them. And secondly, this is going to look like meditating more on truth, the glories of the cross, resurrection, whether it's the word or a devotional or a Christian book or some other resource. We're going to do this for 40 days, um, and if you're interested in joining, it doesn't have to be that long, but you are welcome to. Um, and just a word of clarification here, um, many of the days do overlap with Lent, but to be clear, in case you're wondering, this is not us observing Lent. So if this is personally something you do, you're free to do Lent. Um, but I will say this. That Passion Week happens so fast, right? Easter comes so quickly. Um, and I do wish I spent more time meditating on the glories of Christ, the cross, resurrection. Now, again, I don't, I don't think you need something for that, right? You don't need Lent to do that. But I do think dedicating a block of time through fasting can be a way to help prepare our hearts for Easter in the same way we take the weeks of Advent to remember the Incarnation. So with that said, um, I do believe fasting is primarily in response and in a time of testing, a trial or struggle you're going through. And so I want to ask you, maybe you have some really important decisions ahead and you need clarity of mind. You need greater conviction, peace of God guarding your heart in Christ Jesus. Maybe you currently have some deep relationship struggles in your life. It's kind of a mess and it's hard. You're not quite sure how to think about it, how to navigate, navigate it. It's weighing on you. Maybe you really need to take the time to lament. I mean, there's something you've been carrying with you. Great sorrow in your life, but you really haven't taken the time to grieve the loss. Maybe you really need to repent of known sin. You are enslaved to the passions of the flesh, whether anger or bitterness or sexual sin. You feel sorry for your sin, but it doesn't seem to be godly sorrow that leads to true repentance. And maybe you just need to wake up. You are so consumed by grades, school, work, relationships, even maybe distracted by games and entertainment. Your faith, you would say, is just languished. There is no seriousness, no zeal to your faith. Maybe you just really want Christ to make more of a difference in your life. Now again, you, you don't need fasting to make this a reality for you to lament, repent, seek his wisdom. And fasting, even though it has no inherent spiritual value, it can be another means of grace to see and savor.
Christ. Okay, so fasting can be short and long, but um, it does help to set a time. And so we're starting February 20th. That's a Tuesday, two Tuesdays from now for 40 days leading up to Easter. Uh, If you want to think more about fasting, I listed a few resources in the notes that you can look through. One is just a website article. um, The other's a book, so it's longer. But you're welcome to those if you'd like. Uh, And we'll send another reminder as well. Now, uh, we've looked at these three examples, uh, representative examples of how we practice our righteousness. Almsgiving, which is caring for others who are in need. Praying, which is communing with God. And then fasting, which is denying yourself uh, so that you can pursue God and love others. Now, in all of these areas, um, there is the danger. The danger of doing these things to be noticed by others um, instead of being motivated primarily for the eyes of God. And God not only sees, He says He'll reward us. And I believe that's both rewarding us in the present and in eternity. Um, most of you guys know, Rethan and I are support-raising uh, support right now uh, to, to leave for missions in Japan uh, to Japan in October. And so... Uh, as people who are support raising, we have actually this special seat of seeing how people are giving to support our ministry. And so some giving is anonymous. Uh, many we know by name. And whatever amount is given, I mean, we, we're honored. We're honored by it, that people would trust us. Um, so we're encouraged. Uh, sometimes the giving is as big as $10,000. Is huge encouragement to us, right? Sometimes, uh, though the monthly support is relatively small, um, we know the family giving it, and we know that they don't have a lot. They don't have a lot to give. And so they are living out generosity out of the little that they have. And who's to say they don't support other missionaries and ministries? Um, And I think missions is one example where we see all three acts of piety that Jesus mentions here, they come together. And, and these acts, they're relatively unknown in the eyes of others. People don't notice them, right? People give in response to this financial need, uh, material need. And then people pray for God's name to be known in a particular mission field. People fast because missionaries might be facing a great spiritual need and just want to seek God in it. Our Father rewards in the present. Now, for those who give, the reward may be the freedom from the love of money, greater trust in His provision for our needs. And for those who pray, the reward may be answered prayer and courage for the missionary in uh, the fear of evangelizing or wisdom with challenges in the mission field. For those who fast, the reward may be greater assurance knowing that I am not controlled by my appetites. I'm not controlled by this thing, this pleasure that I enjoy. A reward could be less distraction, more able to serve others with a renewed focus on Christ. Now, these are just some ways that God rewards us in the present. But we should also be motivated by what we can expect from our Father in heaven. Rewards that we will not know about or receive until we die or Christ comes again. 
Now we should anticipate that there will be far greater riches in heaven. I think someday in eternity we'll get to experience such rewards. To hear that it was through your giving to this missionary or ministry that this person was able to hear the gospel and come to know the Lord. You played a real part in that. Or a reward that through your praying, it was through your praying that when the sister was facing such hostility for her faith and led to despair, that your prayer gave her great strength and hope in the Lord to persevere. Or a reward that when you fasted that time, earnestly sought the Lord, that's when you were freed from living for this person's approval and you were given wisdom to truly love this person. We can anticipate what is to come. Now it says God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or even think. And so begin um, in living out our faith. May we be driven by that, by that great reality that it is the Father who sees us in secret and he will reward. Let me pray for us. Father, God, we do ask that you would continue to work your word, not just through the preaching, but through, God, our humble discussion of what Jesus has said, that it would search us out and not only search us out but also give us hope and give us strong encouragement god thank you lord that you see us thank you lord that you notice and that we have this great promise that our works um, matter to you uh, and that you care about them and you say that you will reward us and so father may that drive us Um, as one motivation uh, for why we live for you. So we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.